solidified it and ensured that it would be a cult film forever. Boy, what they ended up with is just, you'll, you'll never, ever forget it. You play a good game, boy. Now the game is over. Now you die. This is the end. Beautiful friend. This is the end. Yeah, we are going to be talking about endings. There's going to be some spoilers. A lot of spoilers. My only friend, the end. Another one of Hope's favorites gets on the playlist, The Doors. I don't think we've had The Doors on here yet, no, have we? you would not ever let me put them on here. <laughs> I'm not a big Doors fan. No. We can get into that. But you know what? And while we're talking about the songs in the playlist, if you didn't know, there's now a Fright Club playlist on Spotify. It's one of those things I've been meaning to get to for a while and finally did. So you could look up uh, Fright Club hits on Spotify. We've got some of our favorites over the many episodes of Fright Club, some of the tunes that you, uh, you were digging on the podcast. So check that out if you would like. And uh, welcome. This is the Fright Club podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we're from madwolf.com. And thank you so much, first of all, to everybody that came out to our last edition of Fright Club Live at the Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio. We had a bunch of fun. We had a great movie, mm-hmm. uh, Eyes of My Mother, on the big screen. And we talked mm-hmm. about uh, mothers and daughters in horror. And uh, we got we had a really good response to that. I think Melissa Dean, it was great to see her again. Tammy, they both commented they had a good time. And then Chris Ellis Levy, she follows us on, on social. She's never made it out. She says she really wants to just come out. Just do it. <laughs> just make the trip. We make it sound so easy, right? Just That's do right. It. Just do it. So next time, Wednesday, May 9th at Gateway Film Center, we are going to show the film Severance, the very British, Uh very dark horror comedy. And we're going to talk about workplace horror. Yeah, that should be fun. And also, while we're uh, making spots on the calendar, we have another podcast that we do every week called The Screening Room, where we talk about just all the new releases, regardless of genre, sometimes horror. Of course, we love that. But to all the new releases in the theaters and on home video, we do that once a week. And coming up, we're going to be recording that one live. We've been asked to be part of the Columbus Podcast Festival, so that'll be fun. It's going to be Friday night, May 11th. We'll be on the Short North Stage right there, 1187 North High uh, in Columbus. And we're going to be doing the show around 830 or so. So love to see you out there. That should be a bunch of fun. Looking forward to it. So got the housekeeping out of the way, and we were taught we were going to talk about endings, our best endings, our favorite horror movie endings this week. And we've got a great special guest to join us. We've been trying to set this up for a while because we were a fan of his podcast called Hell Bent for Horror. Welcome in S.A. Bradley. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. I love the show. Uh, got to hear your uh, sex and death show, which was really interesting. Anytime you bring up, just as an aside, uh, Jess Franco's Beyond the Darkness. <laughs> I, I'm like, wow. Uh, you, you could do an entire show on sex and death and Jess Franco. Uh, I think he had a Emmanuel film because he did so, softcore porn as <laughs> yes. well as horror. And that's the only softcore that had a snuff film in it so it's like that's Jess Franco all over <laughs> yeah that, that was a fun one and we've certainly got a lot to talk about with this category yes. this theme and so much so that we've actually decided to move it from a top five to a top ten we're actually going to split it into two different podcasts so we'll take a, take care of the first half right here right now because you've got your list and we've got ours of our favorite endings and it's nice because there's a little bit of overlap but not too much so we get to talk about a lot of different movies yeah, and it was. Yeah. I know that you you felt the same way. This was a tough list to put together. 
Oh, yes. I, I, the funny thing is when you first hear uh, the, the request, you're going, ah, oh, Jesus, like five really impactful ones. And then when you start thinking about it, you're going, man, not really. There's a ton of horror films that uh, love to have that flick of the switch at the end. And it makes sense. It's indicative of the genre that what we want to do is get people into an emotional space and then hit them with something to make them think about that emotional space. And these movies are just truly uh, a great version of that. Some of them are even like literary in how good the ends mm -hmm. are. Well, when we decided, okay, it can't be five, it's got to be 10. Then I realized that I still had at least five or six that I, I mean, this could, yeah, right. this could be, this could be four or five different podcasts because some of the ones just, just so y'all can be pissed off right now that Cabin in the Woods, that is right. such a great ending and not good enough to make this list. The <laughs> Others, The Others is another one yeah. that is just, and then, of course, what's in the box? Seven. Seven oh, didn't make the list yeah. either. Wow. You are a tough customer. <laughs> I know. Right. The Innocence was another. For yes. Me. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I uh, would also say I put as a historical importance Halloween, because even though it's very, very obvious what the end is now, when Halloween came out, I think the first movie that ever had the jump scare of he's dead. No, he isn't dead is was it Wait Until Dark? Oh, my goodness. Uh, with Audrey Hepburn. Sure. As yeah. a blind woman. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wait Until Dark. Uh, and uh, Alan. Alan yeah, Arkin. Right. Alan Arkin. Yep. So that was the first jump scare that I remember of a guy who's supposed to be dead and he's not dead. But Halloween took that to uh, a different era. What they what Carpenter was trying to do was create something that became went from being a little story in a backyard to a serial killer that seemed very real to myth. And that mm -hmm. end created myth. And I remember being in the movie theater when I saw that end and everybody's like, oh, well, there's the jump scare. Oh, wait a second. He's getting back up. And by the third or fourth time, it went past being funny to something truly legendary that had never been seen before. So when you look over the edge of the uh, second story window and you just see the uh, yard where a body's supposed to be and that music starts, yep. that just started an entire chain reaction. So for historical importance, I talk about Halloween, but it no way could make this list. Yeah, but no, that's a good point. It is. It has become very, very historically significant. And and in a similar vein, Friday the Thirteenth, you know, yes. which which had very, you know, it had become uh, at that point in that you know sort of really quick window where the slasher became established, that you had to end with something like that. Uh, and it is. I mean, it's Friday the Thirteenth ending is is maybe my favorite part of the entire movie. Well, I, I mean, it is. It is mine. I can tell you that. So that's a few that were very, very good, but. Still not good enough to make either one of our lists. So that just shows you the kind of quality we got coming up here. So let's get at it. This is part one of our favorite horror movie endings. And uh, we'll just start with the number 10 film on SA's list. A young man who believes himself to be a vampire goes to live with his elderly and hostile cousin in a small Pennsylvania town where he tries to redeem his blood craving urges. From 1978, the end of George Romero's Martin. I warned you, Martin. Nobody in the town, I said. Nobody in the town. I heard about Mrs. Santini. You think I believe she killed herself? Do you really think I believe this? Your soul is damned. Nosferatu. Martin is a teenage boy who's come to uh, Pittsburgh to live with his uncle uh, because his family has died he may be mentally ill, 
or he may be an 80-year-old vampire. <laughs> the uh, uncle believes that he may be a vampire. And as the movie goes on, Romero constantly allows us to wrestle with the idea of it either being a supernatural story in very natural elements or a natural story where the supernatural is being pushed upon the story itself. You have a stalker in town who is taking people out with a syringe and a razor blade and bathing in their blood Mm -hmm. and basically having himself aroused by that. And at the same point, you're watching this film and instead of going, well, there's the monster, you're kind of sympathizing with this guy. You may never like him, but you feel that this is a very unconventional monster. So you're watching this movie and you're trying to figure out where your allegiances are. And there's some really brilliant uh, plays with the camera that happened through this film. And then comes the end. And you have a feeling that the movie is going to end with a certain resolution. And you have followed uh, the uh, quote unquote death of all this. I I, I kind of uh, call Martin like a vampire version of Grey Gardens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Because you have these arguments that are ancient that continue to go back and forth between these people. There's never a resolution. They're living with ghosts. They're living in a town of ghosts. And it seems as if there's going to be a resolution where people are going to get away and Martin is just going to continue to live on. And out of nowhere comes the uncle who decides, you know, uh, he's made a a pact with Martin that you can kill people outside of town. But if I ever hear you kill somebody in town, I'm going to kill you and you are going to be doomed into hell. And there is an irony that someone dies that doesn't have anything really to do with Martin actually doing his his version of killing, but it is pinned on him by this uncle. And we have this moment where you have uh, the uncle actually staking him in the bed. During all of this, through the entire movie, there is this constant Greek chorus that is a talk radio show, the boredom of the talk radio show at midnight. And the count, as he was known, this kid, Martin, would get on and tell people how what they say in movies about uh, vampires getting girls, that just doesn't happen. And he became kind of uh, something to relieve the boredom. Well, we see him die. And the end of the movie is the radio playing the talk radio show where everybody is asking where the count is and you're hearing a myth being born. This idea of the old vampire is actually being uh, born out of this soil. The boy is, is murdered and then he is buried in the backyard and salted the earth and all of this stuff. But the radio keeps him alive and you can hear someone in the background saying, I think my friend is the count. So you have this thing where we see how myths are built We see how myths are destroyed, and we see how myths are continued on in someone else. And it's a shocking end because we, we, by the end, we believe that Martin's just a kid. And so that end comes out of nowhere and really shocks you. And then you continue to live with that end through the credits by listening to the stories of how people are looking for myth and looking for legend in their lives. So I really think that it's a great film that nobody has seen. I think Martin is, for me, the best example of Romero as a director. Uh, I think that it it was such a departure from what we'd already seen him do. And it was a really beautiful ending. I love the way that movie ends, which is going to be quite a departure from our number 10 because the end is just this (laughs) 
you know, it's this infamous, bizarre, final shot freeze frame in a film. No doubt about that. Angela Baker, a traumatized and very shy young girl, is sent to summer camp with her cousin. Shortly after her arrival, anyone with sinister or less than honorable intentions gets their comeuppance from 1983. The unforgettable ending of Sleepaway Camp. Like we were saying a second ago about this sort of early window of slashers, you had to kind of one-up the one that just came out. You had to come up with some sort of a flashy ending that was going to make everybody forget about the one that they just saw that you knew you were going to be compared to. And boy, Sleepaway <laughs> Camp, which is a weird movie beginning to end. I really like oh, this wow. movie. It's so homosexual in its orientation in so many ways. They didn't draw your attention to it. It just is how things played out, which made it so incredibly odd for 1983. But then, of course, the final ending where we find out Felissa Rose isn't really Felissa Rose and the boy that the sweet boy that she's been sort of crushing on uh, now we know really shouldn't have been crushing Hunter in the first place as she stands (laughs) there stark naked with a penis and a hairy chest holding the boy's head and a knife on that look on her face is is just is one will just haunt your dreams it was interesting they ended up getting a drunk a college student a guy to Mm -hmm. be the the stand-in who had to get drunk to do it but they for a while they talked about Maybe creating a mold, having a strap-on prosthetic right. uh, for uh, Felicia Rose to, to you know use in the spot, but they scrapped that. But boy, what they ended up with is just you'll you'll never ever forget it. It certainly makes them because you're right. The movie is so weird, and then you get to that ending, and it just becomes such an iconic horror movie ending. And why we had to put it on here. I think it's yeah. a I think it's a funny what what you're saying because uh, if anybody was paying attention while they watched it, the, you're not going to forget that movie. Everything about it is just off. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, especially in 1983, with this sort of barrage of slashers, weren't really paying attention to it, and it wasn't really settling in until that last moment, and then and it solidified it and ensured that it would be a cult film forever because oh, yes. the other thing is that it perfectly fits the actual film itself. It's not like where out of the blue something happens and you're like, that's the only thing about the movie that's worthwhile. It actually is a perfect cap to that film. Oh, yeah. Some people thought that that was a cheat. And that's like, no, there's no cheat to that ending. That's a a well-earned ending. And it's a in a way, it's funny after you see it a few times. I saw it in the theater when it came out and (laughs) I was like pinned to the back of the of the chair and people got up. There were like guys that were like hopping over seats to get out of the (laughs) out of the theater because they saw that sequence. But you're right about it being such a weird. It's such a perverse film. I think the center of that film is the cook the uh, really weird creepy child molesting kind of cook that's at the uh, at the camp and he's like calling the kids baldies you know this really, really grotesque yeah. disturbing and it's kind of like uh if you've ever seen the movie Alice Sweet Alice yeah the Brooke Shields, there's that very heavy set guy that movie just has like a pantina of grime on it and there is that on sleepaway camp as well for it's kind of like this weird mix of the 80s teen sex comedies that were really big at that time right and the slasher film and they kind of connect in this weird nightmare and when you're when i was first watching i'm like well this is an okay slasher and then that end happened i'm like okay 
this we got to talk about. That's right. <laughs> we're going to be talking about this for a while. <laughs> no doubt. And that is our number 10 as we're running down our list of favorite horror movie endings. So we're up to number nine on both of our lists. It's a nurse, a policeman, a young married couple, a salesman, and other survivors of a worldwide plague that is producing aggressive flesh-eating zombies take refuge in a mega Midwestern shopping mall. It's the 2004 edition of Dawn of the Dead. Nicole, what is that? Chips, no! Oh, shit! Stay behind me! If there's ever been a director made for this particular idea of a great end and a great beginning, it's Zack Snyder. He may be the greatest 15-minute director of the first 15 minutes of a film and the last 15 minutes of a film that I've ever seen. The middle, he has a little bit of a problem with. But Dawn of the Dead has one of the greatest openings and one of the greatest endings I've ever seen. And one of the reasons that the end is so good is that it takes a movie that had a certain mood to it and changes that mood completely within the ending credits. And uh, so there's almost like two endings to Dawn of the Dead. There's the semi-downbeat ending where the hero kind of saves everything everybody, but he ends up being doomed. And that kind of feels a little bit Hollywood. But then there's the end that happens during the credits. One of the characters earlier in the movie had a video camera. And all of a sudden, at the end of the movie, there's this camcorder moment where the music cuts out and we're almost like in a found footage movie. And the there's no sound whatsoever except for what is coming over the sound of the camcorder and you're immediately hit with a chill and what we're basically watching is the end of the world we've seen people escape but by now we're seeing what happens to you once you escape what happens after that happy ending what happens when the the hero goes over the hill well now we see what's on the other side Mm -hmm. of the hill and inside of this we see things are not going well running out of water they find uh, uh people they think they find people on a boat they find more dead bodies. They find an island finally. Everybody thinks, well, if we can get to an island, we'll be safe. Not so fast. And the movie ends with a terrifying thing where they're on this island and you can hear the jungle just coming to life with something coming towards them. And it is bodies. It is a bunch of zombies that are coming towards us. And I thought that was like the greatest nihilistic end ever because a lot of people were going, well, what what's this new Dawn of the Dead going to be about? And I thought it was brilliant that it didn't try to be what the original Dawn of the dead was in the way of allegory. That ship has sailed. The idea of consumerism being what's going to consume us, that was already done by the 80s in real life. So what are you going to do now? Well, what I think that Zack Snyder did so well was the idea that we will live with anything in the new normal as long as we can still have nice conversation and coffee. And you can continue (laughs) to do that until it goes away. And then by the time you really have to take action, (laughs) The island is already covered with zombies. It's over. And I thought that was a brilliant way to look at the new normal of how we'll just allow ourselves to be put in smaller, smaller boxes for safety. And at first it's bad, but then we'll turn it into uh, like in that mall. They're walking down uh, the halls as if it's a a street. It could be an ABC school special in the middle of that film because everybody's acting like everything's okay. They're so comfortable with consumerism. And they and they they really debate very seriously whether they're ever going to leave the mall, whether there is anything else to do. 
And one of the things, it's funny that you mentioned the great opening. We did best horror movie openings, and this did make that list. Because it is it's just an amazing way to start a film. Oh. But, but as you said, there's a tone through the entire movie that he just switches on a dime with that found footage, you know, over the closing credits material, which is amazing. And what I love is that the, the boat, the proper end, the boat is going off into the sunset. There's a big American flag. Ving Rhames mm-hmm. in his police uniform is standing silhouetted. It's such a cliche ending to a movie. And then you like this, you know, and then this found footage comes up and you realize, oh, no, this is the worst decision they ever made. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, we're, we're definitely thinking alike on this one. It's our number nine, and it's your number nine, Dawn of the Dead from 2004. And that brings us up to number eight on S.A.'s list from 1979. A teenage boy and his friends face off against a mysterious grave robber known only as the Tall Man, who keeps a lethal arsenal of terrible weapons with him. Don Coscarelli's ending of Phantasm. It's one that maybe people don't think of as the end being uh, such a groundbreaker. But to me, the end starts about five minutes before the film ends. We have a change in what we know. And of course, phantasm being the idea that you are seeing things, uh, that you see a spirit, perhaps, uh, that there's a figment of your imagination that is happening. And the entire movie is like that. I love phantasm because Coscarelli tried to go for European surrealist cinema and put that into a horror film. Uh, when I met him, I, I talked to him about the movies of Nicholas Rogue, and I said, this movie reminds me of the kind of visual puzzles that Rogue did. And he's like, yes, and also these other movies. And he talked about a couple other directors like uh, Cocteau and, uh, of course, uh, Boonwell would be on there, uh, Alan Rene. Uh, mm-hmm. He talks about how he used these styles to uh, create this story. So basically what you have is a story about death uh, uh, and how death follows somebody Uh, through tragedies in his family. So we have two brothers uh, who are, in the very beginning of the movie, we believe, are uh, coming to the funeral of a friend, a family friend. Uh, And we've also heard that the parents have been killed in an accident. And the rest of the movie is the young boy trying to reconcile the death of people around him and this ominous figure that seems to be in the center of all these deaths that are happening inside of this town. It's an extremely surreal film that breaks uh, a lot of boundaries of uh, where time is and where space is inside of the film. But why this movie makes this list outside of the uh, the fact that it's very head trippy is right when you think that you've watched uh, the finale of the film, there is what normally would drive you crazy in a movie, which is the idea that it may have been a dream. We find out that many visual puzzles, little images that we had seen through the film that didn't quite work uh, when we were watching it, or they kind of stuck out, all are clues to the fact that this boy has lost his brother uh, uh, in the beginning of the film, uh, not his friend. And that all of this is the fever dream of someone who has lost his entire family at the age of 14, mother, father, and brother are now dead. And the only person who's there now for him is an old family friend. And uh, they're going to try and get out of town. And you get this weird shock as you start to see this visual puzzle unfold over a series of montages that let you know where this was. And if you watch the film a couple times, you realize that all of these are little allusions to childhood fears. 
uh, that all come together. And Phantasm, and the main part of this, the bad guy, is the tall man. And just when you think, okay, that's what it is, it's this end, you realize that that's another false ending. That all of this is that death has been coming for this boy. Yeah. And the last shot is that death is there. And it's almost, to me, it's kind of like uh, the seventh seal where, you know, he has this chess game with death, but death already knows all the moves. In fact, by the end of the movie, we realize that that knight has done all this bargaining and it hasn't bought him a second. It hasn't bought anybody a second. It was all going to happen when he finally gets back to his village, that the the black death is already there. And so it's almost like this weird dance with death. And that's what I love about Phantasm is that it has this very 70s, very uh, small town, like what I grew up with wearing jeans, jackets and stuff kind of feel to it. But it has this mythology of death that could be in a Bergman film. And I really thought it was great. Yeah, and you've actually at the end you've got that that family friend, the guy with the guitar, mm-hmm. actually telling yeah. him and telling us that it is just a dream. It all, and then he goes up to get his stuff to get out of town, and then, like you said, that's when the tall man reappears again. So, yeah, it, it's effective in that false false sense of security, and then that final that final shock. And at the same time, though, like Sleepaway Camp, it actually fits the film. It's not just you know, right. oh, he's not dead, or oh, it, you know, it, it it actually does. It's a good capper for the story that's being told in the first place. Right. You play a good game, boy. Now the game is over. Now you die. It's yeah. one of the big lines. Yeah. So Phantasm, uh, number eight for SA, as we run down our favorite horror movie endings and moving it up to uh, number eight for us. And this is from 1982. A crew in Antarctica finds a neighboring camp destroyed and its crew dead. Whatever killed them is nowhere to be found unless it's hidden in plain sight. The ending of John Carpenter's The Thing. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. This was on and off and on and off and on and off this list. I'll be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, what I really like about the ending, and it's not just when the you know the monster pops up and McCready finally kills it, right? It's it's then that's fun. That's a fun thing to see. But it's when he and Keith David are sitting across from each other, and they're not going to survive. The fire is going to go out at some point, and they're going to die. And they're just going to sit there and share this drink and look at each other. And both of them know. I think you're mm-hmm. it. You think I'm it. We're probably going to die. And then they just have like a funny conversation and then they fade out. Well, that's what he says. We'll just we'll just see what happens. Yeah. See what happens next. Yeah. And so much has been made mm-hmm. of this ending over the years. Digging for clues. Of course, the the biggest one being the so much more breath that you see coming out of right. Kurt Russell's uh, mouth when talking than Keith David. So that's the biggest clue. And in some interviews, I think uh, John Carpenter has even alluded to that fact in saying that he didn't think it was that ambiguous, if you really look at it. But then people throw in other stuff and dissect it as they like to do. But, uh, yeah, I think it's that type of feeling that you just described. Like, they're just looking at each other like, what in the hell now? You know, and it just leaves you with, uh, after all that we've been through with all those guys and that freezing and the claustrophobia mm-hmm. of the movie, to end it that way is, is, to me, yeah, a really great capper. 
Yeah, I thought it was uh, probably one of the perfect endings. It was a 70s movie ending in the 80s, and that didn't go over very well. But it was uh, the the way that it needed to go. Uh, anything else would have been a cheat. And I thought that it was very ballsy for him to end the film with that kind of ambiguity. It doesn't even end with the, the shock cut of uh, Keith David suddenly getting a third eye and jumping at him. <laughs> Nothing like that happens. You, you have this wonderful where you've had this claustrophobic cloying feeling all the way through the film to allow that to continue to the very last moment where there's this slow pace of them just drinking and it's starting to get cold again. I was just like, this is so great. Now, when I saw it in the theater, people did not think it was so great. My dad, uh, I thought he was going to disown me for liking the movie, but, uh, it was, it was something else to say the least. Yeah. That's always an interesting point when you talk about this movie, about how it was, it's grown in such stature over the years, but it, it failed. It failed when it yeah. came out, at, and, and pe- people didn't like it. But, boy, that has changed over the years. So that's our number eight on our list of favorite horror movie endings. That takes us up to number seven for S.A. from 2001. Tensions rise within an asbestos cleaning crew as they work in an abandoned mental hospital with a horrific past that seems to be coming back. Session nine. Do it, Gordon. Do it now. And where do you live, Simon? I live in the weak and the wounded. Dark. If there's one movie on my list uh, that people haven't seen that I would encourage them to see would be this little gem. If you like, uh, I think I had mentioned some movies have literary ends. This is a very literary film, although it's also quite visual, called Session 9. And it's about uh, asbestos abatement crew that ends up going into an abandoned mental hospital, a real life place called the Denver's Mental Hospital, which is a huge amount of acreage. The movie and the, the, the meets the scariness of the actual building perfectly. If you see this movie, the uh, as the Overlook Hotel is, uh, as the uh, mansion is in uh, The Haunting, uh, you have this character, which is this building. And basically you have uh, the, these men who are going in to take out this uh, asbestos from the building. You have a main character, Gordon, the uh, owner of the company is Gordon, and we see his life through small snippets that he is obviously on edge. He has a new baby. Uh, he is angry with his wife. Uh, he stayed away from the house uh, to go do this work because he's kind of in uh, a bad way with the family. We're not quite sure what it is. There are a lot of mysteries. His second in command, Phil, uh, realizes that his uh, boss is having a lot of uh, angst uh, while they're doing this job. He also knows that he's working the guys too hard uh, and there's tension that is happening there. But once they get inside of that building, the building itself seems to talk to some people and it seems to know what scares others. And this is one of the first movies that was shot entirely on DV. So it has a very strange feeling of reality to it as opposed to something that would have a very strong film feel. It almost feels like it could be found footage, but it doesn't take that found footage tack. What happens is that while they are in this mental hospital 
one of the workers finds a group of tapes, and the tapes are for someone known as patient 444, Mary Hobbs, and she had multiple personalities. And as we're listening to these tapes, we realize some really horrible things were going on inside of this mental hospital. But there is one of her, uh, her personalities that even the psychiatrist who's on the tape seems afraid of, and that is Simon. And we don't hear from Simon on these tapes until we get to the affirmation mentioned session nine. What ends up happening at the end of this film is you think you know who's going to be quote unquote possessed by what's going on inside of the, the mental hospital. Is it haunted? Is it possessed? Is there a spirit there? Yes, it seems that there is. But the person that you think is being slowly mesmerized is not the person who gets mesmerized. He is already mesmerized by the time he comes to this job. He may have already caught this bug, if you want to call it that, the first time that he comes to do an assessment of the building without his team. It ends up being Gordon, the the main character who we are uh, basically sympathizing with through this movie. And we find out that these smaller sides that we see, these little shots of him sta- sitting in his truck alone, uh, looking out at his house lovingly uh, as if he just wishes he could go back in there. We find out that everybody that's in that house is dead and he's murdered them. He has killed his family. And then he comes to the job and he slowly systematically murders everybody that is in his in his workplace. And this is where it gets very literary because you're you're kind of following this one piece and then you're hit with this other. But it is a hearkening back to the spirit of Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House. This is an unsane place. And this place has this monster inside of it named Simon. And Simon, in the last shot of the movie, is heard on the tape saying, I live in the weak and the wounded. And when the first time I heard that, after seeing everything that happens in this movie, I got the chills and I had to watch this movie again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a definitely a, a gripping ending after all that, especially when it's just all boiled down to the voice on the tape. Yes. Voice work is something that I think people underestimate the power of just a voice and Mm -hmm. the impact that it can have in a horror film, the exorcist, obviously. Right. Um, And then uh, there are so many others where, where it's, it really is. It's just a voice and, and it creeps you out so much. And it's hard to even say why it is, but in that case, it, it is really true. First of all, it's a brilliant line. And second of all, the delivery is impeccable. Yes. I did do not give it justice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very, very true. Very good ending for session nine, which is number seven for SA, and that makes it up to number seven for us. So we'll go back to a classic one we've talked about many times. You talk about a movie being dissected. This might be the king. 1980, The End of the Shining. <laughs> So it's another place where the building itself is as much of a character as anything. Oh, yeah, very much. And again, it's funny because for for so many of these, it could just be the whole third act that we talk about. The third act is where there's finally some action in this movie where, you know, everything happens. And, of course, you've got that brilliant final image of Jack Torrance frozen to death in the maze. But then it's really that creepy sort of swing music. And then the photo, and you realize that you realize exactly what it is that the the haunting of the building itself has done to everybody. And it's such a trippy way to end the movie. You know, it's such a, a calm 
a weirdly calm ending to so mm. much anger and rage and energy and chasing and terror. But it's so Kubrick. Everything about it is so Kubrick. Yeah, because that way, you know, it was he made a big change from the book yeah. uh, in that he didn't blow oh. up the hotel. Everything, according to what you read, uh, Kubrick thought that was just a real cop-out way to end things and wanted to be able to continue the feeling of creepiness. It doesn't all get wrapped up so nicely. And... Uh, this was certainly a way to do it. And I think it's interesting, too, to look at some of the additional thoughts about the endings. There was one leaked ending that they considered, I guess. One of the treatments was to have Wendy kill Jack and then Halloran come to rescue, but he would then be instantly infected, haunted by the hotel, and he becomes the killer in the end, the real bad guy who you think. So they would switch it up. you think he was coming to rescue, and he would be the, the ultimate bad guy at the end. So they talked about a lot of different ways, but I think it's funny, too, when you think about how much this movie is dissected and you, you read about the production of it and find out that Kubrick just kind of laughed off all that stuff and thought, it's a ghost story. It's a silly film. Forget it. Don't worry about it. And people just <laughs> go nuts trying to dissect this movie. But I think the ending is so much better than the book's ending. Well, here's the thing. There is a lot of King on this list for me, right? For my mm. 10, there's a mm. lot of Stephen King on this list. And and I've said it before, and people hate me for it, I think that Stephen King ends badly. I, I agree. I think that is one of the major weaknesses in most of his novels, is that he doesn't end particularly well. And yet somehow there's a handful of really great, obviously not everybody is as great a filmmaker as Stanley Kubrick, who who can see the best way cinematically to end the story. And again, I, I mean, I think the way that The Shining ends is utterly brilliant. I, I agree. I agree. I, I uh, will say uh, certainly about what you talk about with Stephen King to be true. I always say that Stephen King is the best when he limits himself. Mm -hmm. If he can keep the story uh, like misery, when I read the book Misery, everything that I thought would happen in the book happened in the first 80 pages. And I'm going, where in the hell is this going to go from there? Uh, Cujo had the same kind of thing where you're trapped inside. When he has multiverses and uh, parallel universes and things like that, he loves to allow that prose to really expand. And so his ends do kind of tap out. You know, he mm -hmm. goes down yeah. this uh, this pass. So I think that in a way, economically, uh, Kubrick certainly knew what to do cinematically, what was going to work. I mean, uh, it's hard to argue uh, the uh, final act of that film uh, that it could possibly be better inside of the book <laughs> because the, the visuals of that are just absolutely incredible. So uh, although I will say that I think that uh, and I get a lot of crap for this, I think that uh, I like the movie The Shining. I think it's a very, very good horror film, but uh, I kind of go crazy over all of the dissection that there is of it. I yeah. remember being in film school and the the teacher saying, well, obviously this is all about uh, the plight of the uh, genocide of the uh, Native Americans. And that's exactly. all it's about and I'm yeah. like, what <laughs> I'm with you I read some of those and it's just it gets it's comical after a while because yeah I've heard that I've heard that theory and there's the one about the moon landing being faked yeah and all that stuff you're like where are you getting this but but we digress uh number seven on our list is the shining <laughs> moving up to number six as we talk about our Best endings in horror, our favorite endings in horror, uh, go to S.A. for number six. And we love it, too. It's from 2005. A caving expedition goes horribly wrong as the explorers become trapped and ultimately pursued by a strange breed of predators. Neil Marshall's The Descent.
I want to preface this by saying this is the unrated director's cut. If there's ever been a movie where the difference between the director's cut and the theatrical cut matter, yes. it's The Descent. I don't want, I'm just going to interrupt you for one second. Something that my sisters tend to do when they, and my nieces and nephews, when they stay with me is we watch a scary movie. I pick a scary movie and we watch it together. And I have a sense of sort of the bar for each of my family members. And I got the descent to watch with my oldest sister, Julianne. And because it was, you know, girl power and it's creepy, but Mm -hmm. it has a happy ending. I got the wrong version. (laughs) I got the wrong version. And Julianne is a strong human being and she punched me really hard. She was so mad. And I am not allowed to pick movies for Julianne anymore. (laughs) That's wonderful. I'm sorry for your family strife, but that's a wonderful story. Uh, The unrated director's cut is, is truly amazing. And it's great that we've already talked about The Shining. And we've already talked about the thing because both of those movies live and breathe inside of the descent. There are allusions to both of those films. The descent into madness of the Overlook Hotel can be the caves that are the descent and uh, the isolation and the transformations that happen. The paranoia of who is what uh, from the thing is there. In fact, there are visual clues to both of those movies and Alien as well are, are kind of all thrown into the mix of the descent. And yet it is its own original idea. So I will say that there are creatures down there that cannot see, but they can hear and they can smell. And it slowly starts to take these uh, women out. We also find out there's a betrayal between uh, one of the main character's friends and the main character herself. She continues, though, in the director's cut to hear her child see her child. And we have this recurring flashing visual of a birthday cake with the candles lit in a very dark room. And we go through this hell with this character. And what's great about this movie is it earns every inch of uh, claustrophobia that it creates. Uh, It's an extremely low budget film where they basically had one uh, tunnel that they had created with a bathtub uh, and some uh, weird uh, polystyrene. And they just rotated it so that they could make it look like it was a new cave. Uh, And yet the actor's steal the show by uh, making it seem as if they are truly terrified and trapped and the camera work really gets you. You go through all of this hell and you think that this woman is getting out. She's somehow got away from these monsters. And in the end, you find out that she's slowly claustrophobically losing her life to the lack of oxygen that's down there. She is trapped, but she is where she wants to be. She is embracing that. She now wants to be with her children or her child. And she sees the end of the movie is she's sitting down with that birthday cake in the cave with her daughter who's blowing out the candles. And it's like, wow, just when you think she's gotten away, you get hit with this. And it is so literary. It is so smart and right for this story. And it is a real downer, but it is incredibly powerful. It is a very powerful image and and the entire movie there I, I love everything about the movie that is sent and I remember when I went to see it the first time I am so claustrophobic and <laughs> and like emotionally worn out before you even see the first monster and then you're like oh my god this is going on too so no it's just a it's a brilliant film top to bottom yeah and it still I, has absolutely. that one part that we I think we just talked about the other night like things you wouldn't do like when they're down there and they, there's the one time where they have to crawl through that little little right. passageway nope nope I'm out Sorry. Yeah. I'm just going to die right here, but you guys have fun. Yeah. I'm tapping out right now. That's right. Yeah. That- 
that's the moment. I'm not a claustrophobic guy. And if I ever see Neil Marshall, I, I, I'm going to shake his hand and then punch his arm because uh, <laughs> like, that was unbelievably good. I think, you know, I think Julianne might, too. <laughs> right, of course. Yeah, no doubt. That is a good one. So that is uh, essays number six, and we'll close it this half of this countdown uh, with our number six, the classic from 1960, the very end of Psycho. They're probably watching me. Well, let them, let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see, and they'll know, and they'll say. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. And I say the very end because when we first were talking about that, I thought, Hope, that you meant the turning around of the chair and, ah, the skeleton mom. You know, no, but you're talking about the actual when they have him in in captivity, they have him captured. Yeah, obviously the, you know, the big, the trick ending when you realize exactly who is in the basement and who is in this chair and what's going on with Norma's mom. Obviously, it's it's incredibly cinema. I mean, for the history of cinema, an incredibly pivotal moment. But for me, it is actually the lingering on Norman uh, mm. in the chair in this very antiseptic, you know, room where you hear the murmur of the police and, the, and his just serene face and then the voice that's in his head, which is his mother talking. And then you see the fly land. It's so and it's funny because one of the things about the movie, a bit like Session 9 and very much to me like Martin, is that even though Norman Bates is the villain, you're rooting for him. You know, you feel for him. He's the vehicle for the the audience through the film, really, of sympathy. And and so in the end, when this all happens, it just pulls the rug out from under you is that, well, he's gone now. Norman's gone now. And in his place is this. Again, it's another great vocal performance Mm -hmm. of this creepy mom voice. You know, just this, you know, we all get a little mad sometimes. It's it's just a great ending. Yeah, and also it it was a We're way that, yeah, Hitchcock was able to satisfy, you know, the codes of the time where you couldn't get away with it, quote unquote. So you have things wrapped up. Okay, the police have solved it. They're dragging, you know, the car out. But at the same time, is it really? Because with you having him stare in the camera like he does, you're thinking, well, he can still do some damage. You know, he could maybe convince him that he is all right and get out of here. So on one hand, you got order restored. And on the other hand, maybe you don't. I think it's really interesting. Uh, I'm sure you guys have watched Psycho a billion times like I have. And uh, there's a moment of the superimposition of the mother's skull when the grill of the car is being pulled out of the yeah. uh, the swamp. And I always saw that that was a wonderfully chilling thing. And it's also superimposed over the smiling face of, uh, of uh, uh, Anthony Perkins. Yeah. So you have this triple threat of the, the grills, basically. All these creepy smiles happening at the same time. Uh, the thing about Psycho, and this is where I, I somewhat break ranks, I will give you the, the smile and the I wouldn't hurt a fly and the, the uh, that uh, superimposition as a fantastic end. I will give you the turning of the chair and and the thing, but the Simon Oakland part is the part that always drives me crazy. Mm. It's the spot where I say that there is a difference between the old Hollywood horror and the new Hollywood horror, where the uh, Romero's 1968 is really the beginning, not Psycho, because in Psycho they need to psychoanalyze. They have that five minute piece where up until then anybody can be Norman Bates. 
that movie is terrifying because it could be the kid down the street. It could be the motel owner. It could be the grocer down the, uh, down the hall, whatever it might be, wherever you are, Norman Bates could be right next to you. But then Simon Oakland tells you, well, it could be Norman Bates if he had problems with his mother and she had an abusive boyfriend and threw a toaster in the, in the tub. And so there's all these reasonings. And that's why I like things like Night of the Living Dead and Halloween, where they give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on, but it's nowhere near yeah. answering any questions. The unanswerable is much better. So whenever I watch that movie, I kind of want to fast forward through the Simon Oakland thing, because to me, it's like, Hitchcock said, okay, we're going to bring the order back. And to me, upsetting the apple cart is what it's all about. And that movie does such great upsetting of the apple cart all the way through. But does that mean I don't like Psycho? Hell no. <laughs> no, a that's, a good, that's a good point and a point well taken. And it's also interesting to note that the, the producers, they had to convince the ratings board that the term transvestite was an mm. actual medical term that the, the board right. thought they were trying to get put one over on them and sneak in <laughs> like a dirty word. And then, no, it's an actual clinical, clinical word. And yeah, yeah there's, there is, you're a lot of, you get a lot of explaining from, from Simon Oakland there uh, before the very, very final shot. So no, that's a, that's a point well taken. So that wraps up part one. Originally, this was just going to be a, a one shot deal, but we had too many good endings to talk about. So we ran through uh, number 10 through number six on both of our lists for our favorite horror movie endings. So we'll get back together in a couple of weeks, in a few weeks to do the second part. And until then, we've got another Fright Club Live. Yes, we do. On May 9th, Wednesday, May 9th, we want you to come out and watch Severance with us and talk about the best workplace horror. That'll be a fun one. And uh, as always, got a quibble with our list or with essays, let us know. You can get a hold of us. Easiest way is on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. We're Mad Wolf Columbus on uh, Facebook and Instagram. And the regular website, of course, is MadWolf.com. S.A., where can we uh, find you on social media? Well, great. Thanks for asking very much. Uh, you can find us on anywhere that you can uh, get a podcast. You're available on iTunes, Google Play, Player FM, and Stitcher. You can also find us uh, on Spotify. Uh, I also have a uh, Twitter account uh, that is at HellbentHorror. We have a Hellbent for Horror page on Facebook and, of course, HellbentForHorror.com. And you can get in touch with me uh, in any way, shape, or form through instant message, cosmic spool, <laughs> email, and I'm about to put up a voice message message as well because I've gotten I'm getting quite a few people who really want to talk hard and I'm excited about that. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right, we'll be back soon to finish up and do the top 5 on both of our lists, but until then, I'm George Wolf. I'm Hope Madden. And this is the Fright Club podcast. Stay frightful, my friends. This is the end.